Welcome to Verified Rx, your prescription for success. Brought to you by the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. I think about times where we've had pediatric patients and we bring families into the room and they're at end of life and we're continuing CPR and we decide we're going to do one more round and we call time of death and the parents wail and cry and scream and yell, no, don't stop, please don't stop, please don't stop. And there's not a dry eye and we're all just trying to hold it together to get out of the room and you've got to go on to the next thing. Pharmacy learners are not immune to the impacts of stress in a patient care setting. Though the concept was initially defined in the 1990s, incorporating education on secondary traumatic stress has become increasingly important of late. I'm Gretchen Brummel, Pharmacy Executive Director in the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence, and your program host. With me today to raise awareness as well as share their experiences are Dr. Jennifer Mando Vandrick, Clinical Pharmacist in Emergency Medicine at Duke University Hospital and Dr. Philippe Mentler, Pharmacy Executive Director at Vizient. Welcome to both of you. Hi, Gretchen. Thank you so much for having me on. Yes, thanks for having us. We'd like to start by acknowledging that anytime we discuss personal health, directing individuals to their care provider is prudent, and we will also provide some helpful links on the episode homepage. Phil or Jenny, what really started your interest in discussing this topic? Well, actually, it started with us sitting around a campfire. Jenny and I have known each other for 18 years at this point, and we were sitting around the campfire just chatting about random things. A conversation came up about one of her students having experienced a pretty difficult traumatic event within the emergency department, a person who was maybe of similar age and had a bad outcome, and how hard it was for that individual. I, at first, was like, that's excellent that that student was able to share it openly with Jenny. And not only that, but then Jenny responded in kind with her experience and ways to help cope with that. And then expanded the conversation about our own experiences and some of the events that we experienced and how it impacted us. And then it really broke into that concept of secondary traumatic stress. I really found it fascinating that it took 18 years of us knowing each other to have a conversation at that level of that gravity. And I thought this is a really an important topic that we need to discuss and an important topic that needs to be more openly discussed within the healthcare setting. And Jenny, what's your perspective? It was very, very interesting, just as Phil spoke, that it was an example of someone that I'd known for years upon years, and we never talked about this. I mean, we talked about patient cases and we talked about hard things, but we never really talked about the feels. And the fact that it had been that long and the fact that we were even able to verbalize how these things had impacted us on different levels and how it impacted other aspects of our life really spoke to the fact that, gosh, we probably need to get out in front of this, especially with our residents and other folks and trying to figure out, you know, how have we dealt with this over all the years and never mentioned it to one another? Well, it's illuminating to think that it took that long to come up. So what is secondary traumatic stress? Secondary traumatic stress, or STS, it's also described as compassion fatigue or vicarious trauma. It's a state of emotional distress that results from the indirect exposure of traumatic events that happen to others, whether that be, for example, the healthcare worker treating a gravely ill patient, as you'd see in the emergency department, or even a therapist listening to a victim's experience of a traumatic event. This sounds very similar to burnout. How does it compare? 
When I think about burnout versus STS, there's standard definitions, right? You can look up and there's certain criteria that would be there for each, but I tend to try and think of things from a little bit more of a common sense approach. And I think about burnout as I've got 15 projects, I've got 14 really sick ICU holds, I've got 42 admissions in the ED, and I've got a learner that needs to do this topic, and I've got this research project that I've got to get going on, and my boss calls me, hey, guess what? We've got these other things that I need you to do. To me, that's the burnout. It's the constant adding of the workload of one more thing, one more thing, one more thing that just kind of pushes you over that edge versus secondary trauma is really seeing something, not necessarily having the traumatic event happen to yourself, but you're watching something or hearing of it. I think about times where we've had pediatric patients and we bring families into the room and they're at end of life and we're continuing CPR and we decide we're going to do one more round and we call time of death and the parents wail and cry and scream and yell, no, don't stop, please don't stop, please don't stop. And there's not a dry eye and we're all just trying to hold it together to get out of the room and you've got to go on to the next thing. Over time, that builds up. And that's when I think about secondary trauma and how that then affects you in your next event or your next patient, or even like three patients down from that or three years from now, you can still feel it. Well, I can see that contrast. Once someone has experienced this, what can it look like afterwards? Well, it's a variety of symptoms that can present, whether they're cognitive, emotional, behavioral symptoms, or even physical symptoms increased anxiety, irritability, a feeling of emotional withdrawal or isolation, feelings of powerlessness or helplessness, being kind of numb or detached from situations, physical complaints like headaches, GI upset, for instance, and then symptoms that could impact your working environment, such as diminished concentration or difficulty with making decisions. So there are a lot of implications. How can secondary stress be managed? I think the biggest key to management is trying to prevent it from happening in the first place. It doesn't mean that you don't see bad things or you don't hear bad things or that they don't affect you, but can you prevent the emotions and the stress and the trauma from getting to that standpoint where you're paralyzed or where you're having physical manifestations of it? And when we look at that prevention, I think a lot of it is focused on trying to have some work-life balance, but trying to figure out what are the things that you enjoy? How can you unplug from your work environment? How can you refill your cup of happiness? And that could be learning how to paint. If you like to exercise, exercise. If you don't like to exercise, don't exercise. Read a book. You know, what are the things that bring you joy and what are the things that make you happy? And making sure that you take time for yourself to do those things. Make sure that you acknowledge those feelings that we would push those down and say, you know what? Oh, no, I I work in an emergency department. I have a steel gut. I don't let any of this stuff bother me. Well, it's going to happen at some point and it's going to all bubble up. If you deal with it all throughout, then hopefully you prevent that meltdown and you prevent those really significant symptoms. But I think a lot of it is you're going to have to kind of figure out what are those things that do bring you joy. And if you don't have hobbies and if you don't like things, then you got to find something, even if it's binge watching a show, whatever it is that makes you happy. Yeah, absolutely. You know, paying attention to yourself which means two things, 
appropriate care when it comes to diet, exercise, and sleep, but also observing your feelings and accepting those feelings. And then moving into relaxation techniques, whether that be things like meditation or yoga or whatnot. And indeed, if needed, making sure you have people to speak with, but also seeking professional help if needed. Both of you have quite a bit of experience in a fast-paced emergency setting with a lot of activity, distractions, and demands on your time. How do you fit balance and boundaries in with all of that? I think it's something that you just have to make a priority that you're going to do. You make a priority at work that I have to get this project done by X amount of time, or I need to get this dose done before it's due at this time, right? You know that you have a priority, you know you have something to do and it has to get done. And I think that a lot of times we don't think about the things for ourselves in the same kind of way. And we got to start doing that. And then it gets to the problem, right? Because then it's just one more thing I have to do now. I have to take care of myself. Well, yeah, you got to take care of yourself. And not everything can be about work. And you've got to find those things outside of work. If it's calling your friends and say, hey, do you want to come over tonight and have brownies and sit around the fire? Then that's what you're going to do. And that could be something that it doesn't take a lot of planning, but it could make you happy. Those are the things that we kind of have to prioritize for yourself, but only you can make yourself do it. I think that's the struggle for us. You have to make yourself do those things. I'm sure some of our listeners can identify with that. And what can you do if some of these STS symptoms start to creep up on you? I don't want to oversimplify this, but I like to think about it this way. Three important factors. Accepting that these symptoms can happen, acknowledging those symptoms, being self-aware of those symptoms, and being open, open about how you're feeling, open to having other people tell you about how they're feeling as well. I think it's important acknowledging, accepting, and being open. We haven't really talked about employers and leadership. How can those individuals help in this situation? I think our leaders and employers, I think, are doing a much better job, probably more so now than they ever have in the past. And I think COVID-19 has probably helped with that. We tend to do a lot of debriefing, and these debriefs can occur right after the event. And you can go to them. You can choose not to go to them if you're the type of person that doesn't like to do those things. I think it does help to hear how everyone kind of responds. And you see people have emotions. You know, I've seen... 30-year veteran male attendings crying, and I've seen the most hard-battened nurses shed a few tears. And I think that helps make things a little bit more relatable. I've also talked with people after the fact of like, you know, I just can't get this one thing out of my head. And we talk through it and we realize, wow, you're feeling this too. I bet other people on the team are feeling this. And we've contacted our leadership and it could be something down to having a meditation room set up to we've had a, a therapy dog come and spend some time time with people while we're on lunch breaks. Any little thing that an institution can do to show that we recognize you're hurting and you've gone through something and it would be great if every institution could give someone three weeks time off and time to come back and recoup. But, you know, we're saving lives and we're taking care of patients every day. And that's just not a possibility. But I think that they're trying harder and harder to actively engage with helping us in real time and as close to the event as possible. It all comes down to having that culture that normalizes these feelings that you're having working with uh, trauma survivors. Historically, in our training many, many years ago, there almost seemed to be this stoicism around working in this environment where 
you just stood up, got back to work, and that's just the way it was. I'm not sure that that was the healthiest thing. Working in that environment where we are creating that culture, whether it's therapy dogs or meditation rooms or whatnot, allows us to be acknowledging that this is occurring and accepting of it and being more open with each other. And that's just helpful all the way around for everyone. Yeah, I can see that that culture is pivotal. Tell me a little bit about peer support. I lean on peer support a lot, and I kind of relate this a little bit back to the filling of your cup of find the people that can help support you, find the people that listen, and not necessarily the people that are going to tell you what to do or how to deal with the things, but that can relate somewhat. Once you find those people, you have amazing bond that can help you. You help them and it makes things a little bit easier. It also helps you channel it a little bit so that you're not bringing it home every day and realizing that you're treating your child a certain way because of what you saw or what you did here. You're able to get it out before you even get home and have to deal with it in the personal arena. Yeah. Jenny is my person. Uh, <laughs> Rob is my person, her husband. Those are the individuals that have similar shared experiences and you're able to have these open conversations and the person receives it with empathy. Once you find those individuals, you got to hold on to them. So as our pharmacy learners are interviewing at programs, how can they assess the level of support that will be available to them? This is something that has really come up as of late. Over the past several years, I've noticed learners asking about that, both in PGY-1, PGY-2 programs, and even people looking for jobs. I can remember interviewing for jobs or interviewing for residency, and I never gave this a second thought. I never would have thought to talk about this. And they're asking, they're asking, what are you doing to support your staff? I think those are very fair questions to ask. And I think that We have to work with our learners. We can't expect that a hospital is going to send us on a three-week paid vacation, right? We can't expect that we're all of a sudden going to get a $10,000 bonus because we've been dealing with a lot of trauma right now. It would be great, but I don't think that we should set that up as expectations. We need to help our learners understand that they're going to be looking for those things. You know, Do you offer assistance? Is that well-received? How do your preceptors handle it when there's been a traumatic event? Do you talk about it or do they just expect you to kind of move on to the next thing? What is the culture in the unit where you're going to be working? What is the culture with your colleagues? Do we talk about these things regularly and really work through that? I talk about that a lot when I'm recruiting for emergency medicine. And we also talk about with critical care. We have specific conferences that we do together where we talk about burnout. We talk about secondary trauma. We talk about, we call them the warm fuzzies and the cold pricklies. Like, what are the things that you really need to think about? And it's not necessarily a pharmacotherapeutic fact. There are other things for you to learn. And these are some of the things for you to learn about. So ask specific questions and make sure you know how your institution supports their staff and talk to your preceptors and talk to the staff that you're interviewing with and ask them the same questions and see what answers you get. That's really good advice as we start to get into interview season again. Are we getting better at recognizing and managing this? What additional work is there to be done? You know, Gretchen, we're a profession of continual learners and always looking to progress. So there's always additional work and and we'll never be satisfied, hopefully, with the status quo. But I think, are we getting better at recognizing and managing this? Simply this podcast, this discussion is a testament to the fact that, yeah, we are getting better at recognizing this. Organizations are keen at ensuring that they have healthy, productive employees. So it behooves them 
to be aware and offer resources and support. So yeah, no, I, I think we're definitely getting better, but there's absolutely always room to improve. Jenny and Phil, thank you so much for joining us today to share your insights and expertise. It's been great having you. And to our listeners, please join us for more Verified Rx podcasts. Subscribe today, like us, and send us your comments. We'd love to hear from you. Verified Rx is your prescription for success and is brought to you by the Vizian Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. I'm Gretchen Brummel. Thanks for listening.